you can be great at anything, you're still going to make mistakes. That's part of the process. That's part of getting better. The idea of not making mistakes and getting better does not exist. Hello, and welcome to the May 19th, 2023 edition of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. This past weekend, we saw more exciting racing on both the ITU and 70.3 circuits. The ITU race was held on a slippery and rainy course in Yokohama, Japan, where on the women's side, the Americans had a strong showing. Although the top two spots went to Sophie Caldwell of Great Britain and Rosa Vidal of Mexico, Taylor Nibb, fresh off her recovery from a stress fracture in her toe, held off her compatriot and similarly named Taylor Spivey for bronze. Two more American women, including friend of the podcast Kristen Casper, were all within the top 10, demonstrating that it's going to be a heck of a competition to make the team for the 2024 Olympics in Paris. On the men's side, recent Oceanside winner Léo Berger of France was in the mix again, but suffered from cramps on the run, while New Zealand's Hayden Wild was one of several men to run in the mid-29-minute range for the 10K, demonstrating yet again how these short-course races are just absolutely dominated by some of the fastest runners around. Hayden was 16 seconds back after the swim. It was able to bike his way back up to within two seconds of the lead and then by two laps of the run had opened up an astonishing 28 second gap on his pursuers. He ended up practically jogging home for the win. There was an all out sprint though for the second and third place spots with Matthew Hauser of Australia just edging out Vasco Villa of Portugal. One last note on this race, another past guest on this show, Ben Hoffman, was the guide for paratriathlete Owen Cravens, who races in the visually impaired division. Cravens won his race by an impressive three minutes. Here at home, we saw exciting racing on the 70.3 course in Florida at the Gulf Coast Race in Panama City. This event featured many of the professionals who had raced just a week ago in Utah, but that wasn't really apparent in the finishing results as the podium looked quite similar to what we saw in St. George. Didn't seem like anybody was particularly fatigued. Sam Long again used his strong bike to erase a swim deficit and then added more time on his pursuers on the run. Now, you will recall I made some disparaging comments about Long a few short weeks ago, decrying his performance at Oceanside and suggesting that perhaps it had something to do with his maybe less than ideal nutrition strategy that involved foregoing carbohydrates at the behest of his new coach. Well, you might think that after two wins in a row in a very short time period, I might have to eat crow and admit that I was wrong. But it turns out Long's resurgence doesn't validate his keto focus in nutrition. Rather, it coincides with his firing said coach and returning to every triathlete's preferred fuel for high-intensity racing, that being, of course, carbohydrates. So if you ever doubted what I had to say about keto before, here is a real-world example to add to all of the science that shows that if you want to go fast and you want to win, carbs are very much your friend. Now, rounding out the podium in Florida was Lionel Sanders, and third place again, Jackson Laundrie, who is demonstrating some real consistency in very tough starting fields week in and week out. And I'm excited to say that Jackson is going to be a guest on this podcast in a coming episode, so stay tuned for that. On the show today, life sport coach and former Olympic rower Juliet Hawkman joins me for the medical mailbag when we will discuss a subject that has garnered a fair amount of attention of late, and that is doping in sport. Specifically, we're going to talk about what agents tend to be abused by those who are trying to find an edge, how prevalent that is thought to be, what the motivations are for doing so, and whether or not there's any evidence to actually support the notion that taking these agents is going to actually help. That and a lot more, and that's coming up shortly. Later, I am joined by the owner and founder of Varlo, Saj Jibowu. While you may not have heard of Saj, I'm guessing that you've definitely heard of Varlo. Although it came into existence only three years ago, that company has taken the triathlon world by storm because of their bold designs, high-quality products, and a corporate vision that embraces diversity, equity, and inclusion, both in triathlon and society in general. Saj talks to me about his journey to multisport, how Varlo came to be, and what motivates their success, and that's all coming up shortly. 
Before all of that, I want to take a moment once again to thank all of my Patreon supporters of this podcast who have decided that for about the price of a cup of coffee per month, they could sign up to support this program and in doing so get access to bonus interviews and other segments that come out about every month. For North American subscribers at the $10 per month level of support, I also have a special thank you gift for you in the form of a pretty cool Boko Tridoc podcast running hat. So visit my Patreon site today at patreon.com forward slash Podcast and become a supporter so that you too can get access and maybe this cool gift as well. And as always, I thank you in advance just for considering. I am back with my friend Juliet Hockman, fellow coach at Life Sport Coaching. She is joining me for the medical mailbag. And this is the segment of the podcast when we get to address questions that are sent in by you, the listeners, or we will come up with things that we think are pertinent to what you, the average triathlete, want to discuss or is timely in the news. And I think for this episode, we have something that is kind of timely. Juliet, what what are you? What's on your mind right now? <laughs> well, clearly the big news. What was it? Seven to ten days ago now of drug allegations in our sport has really rocked the triathlon world. There was lots of discussion out there amongst professional triathletes for sure, and that's filtered down into age groupers in terms of discussing this, the rights, the wrongs, what was involved, what the consequences should be, etc. So I think that's on people's minds still, even though it's it's been a few days already. Yeah. And I have spent a ton of time thinking about it, talking about it with other friends and other athletes. And yeah, it's it's such a complex kind of topic. It seems like it shouldn't be. It seems like it should just be, look, there's a right and there's a wrong. But you know, we're all humans. And when I start to imagine some of the pressures that professionals are under and some of the things that would motivate somebody to stick a needle in themselves or not. It's not always putting a needle, but whatever that is that they're doing and, and knowing that what they're doing is clearly against the rules. I'm not sure that I can sit here in judgment so easily, especially when, when I've reviewed some of the literature out there that talks about how unfortunately common this is. Yeah. It's really quite amazing. Yeah. I think that I do understand I understand the emotion of the reaction, particularly from the pro ranks, because this is their livelihood, right? And if you have an individual who's clearly cheated and clearly reaped the benefits of these performance enhancing substances and money was taken away, right? Because they, they took prize money that could have been someone else's. Yeah, that's, that's tough. That's for sure. That, that is a, um, that would piss me off, (laughs) frankly. What I am a little bit surprised about is that so many people were surprised. I guess it didn't surprise me very much to find, wow, hey, this person's doping. What a surprise. I just think it's, it's. I'm surprised that people didn't think it was more widespread than, than apparently they did. So. Well, and, and, and I agree with you. I, I agree with everything you said. I, I, I totally sympathize with this feeling of being robbed and, I was talking with uh, Laura Siddle, who is uh, a member of the PTO board. She's a professional triathlete in her own right. Uh, and she said to me, look, the outrage is magnified by the fact that everybody has a platform. And so it's just very easy to just put your initial emotional gut reaction just out there and it just kind of snowballs on itself. So that, that's part of it. But I, I agree with you. I'm like, why is there any thought that our sport is going to be somehow different from all the other sports out there? Uh, these athletes face many of the same pressures. They face many of the same physical ailments that can push someone to consider these things. And again, I I don't want to, for one second, justify it or defend it. But I think that to sit in judgment is not necessarily something I want to be doing. And like you, I, I was kind of surprised and taken aback by just how vociferous and voluminous some of the responses were <laughs> yeah. because it, yeah. it did, it did seem a little, a little out of touch with what likely is the reality, but I, I don't know if we're ever going to know what the reality is because as much as 
taking a banned substance has become a bit of an art of avoiding testing positive is an art into itself, which I know you're well aware of of being a former Olympian. Uh, You and I have talked about this a lot. And I'd love to hear your perspective of what it was like in the Olympics back at a time when the Eastern Bloc nations still were the Eastern Bloc and, and pretty well renowned for having these kinds of programs. What, what, What was that like? Yeah, thanks. It's 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 sort of interesting to look back with that sort of historical perspective. So I rode in the Olympics in 1988 as a member of the U.S. rowing team, and I, that was the last Eastern Bloc Olympics. The as, as we all remember, the Berlin Wall came down in 1990, and that was the end of the Eastern European sports machine as we know it. So, and in women's rowing, this was a big thing. And East Germans, Bulgarians, Romanians, Russians. Hungarians, they all doped. It was absolutely no question. And year after year after year, the Americans and the Canadians were consistently fifth, sixth, and seventh. Because these 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 machines were unbeatable. I mean, and when I say machines, I mean the system, not necessarily the individuals. In fact, at the 1988 Olympics, the East German women won every single rowing event. I used to be able to whistle the East German national anthem. But at the time, it was... I. I, as an individual, like I can tell you without doubt that no one on the American team, and I'm sure no one, no women on the uh, Canadian team, rowing teams were, were using steroids or any other substances. And I don't know, we just sort of shrugged our shoulders. Like there was nothing we could do about it. There was absolutely no way we could inform or influence what was happening on the other side of the Iron Curtain. And so we just trained the best we could (laughs) and, and sort of got on with our Olympic careers. But I have often said that if I were living in East Germany and as the result of my being a member of the Olympic team and possibly, hopefully, potentially bringing back a gold medal, if my father got the job he wanted and my brother got to go to the university that he wanted to go to and my mother got a better apartment or whatever, I would think about taking (laughs) some substances because it was a totally different quality of life. And I also, frankly, having met some of those women since, I actually don't think they knew the extent to the wit to which they were taking substances. They were at training tables. They all ate together. They ate vitamins. They did as they were told. So I actually don't know how much they knew. So, but here we are, what is that now? 30, 40 years later, <laughs> and we're still struggling with similar issues, different drugs. And I know you're going to talk about that for, for rowing. It was all about the ability to recover, right? Because if you could put three training sessions in a day, instead of two, you're going to be stronger, fitter, et cetera, when you got to the line. So, but I want to hear about, uh, I guess, as an age group or triathlete now, I'm curious to learn more about what are these different drugs, these different performance enhancing stimulants that athletes are putting in their body? Like what are the top three that people are using? Well, there's no real accepted top three, but there are three kind of classes that people most commonly abuse. And this goes for probably age group. That's a little bit harder to tease out an age group. But when we look at professionals and Olympians, these are the three kind of classes that athletes will use. And and just going back to your point about the East Germans not necessarily knowing – a lot of these systemic prog- or systematic programs for doping start way above the athlete and the athletes are just kind of wrapped up into it without necessarily knowing what's going on. And I think that's important to point out where as when you get into these individual sports, it's much more of an individual decision. Although I read quite a bit of research that shows pretty clearly that when you look at these cases, the coach or surrounding coaches are invariably the gate. It's not the athlete who comes up with the suggestion or the idea, but rather a coach who will broach the subject to the athlete. And when we think about the motivations, as we've talked about just a little bit, I was amazed by a study that was done uh, that really kind of showed that Probably the the only thing that stops most people from doping is this idea that, oh, I don't want to get caught and everything that that means. And they don't consider the long-term health effects that these things can do to them, which we'll talk about in a second. They did a survey where athletes were asked if they were willing to misuse performance-enhancing drugs, if it would guarantee an Olympic medal. And for sure they wouldn't be caught. And 98% of the athletes said yes, 
when they asked the same question and said, look, would you take the drug even if you knew that you would die from its adverse effects, but with a guarantee that you would win every competition for the next five years without getting caught, 50% still said yes. So yeah, it, it's a, crazy. it's crazy, right? It's, yeah, it's, it's totally a, it, it's an insight into this mindset where winning is everything, winning at all costs is everything. And I think that, that is something that's much more prevalent among the professional ranks where there's a livelihood to be made, but mm. it's infecting the age groups. And so when you ask about the top three, there's three classes that get the most uh, abuse. The first is the anabolic androgenic steroids. This one is by far the most commonly used across sports. And I'm not talking about triathlon, but just across sports in general. So anabolic steroid has been reported to be as much as 11% of adult gym users who are non-competitive, one in 10, <laughs> 39% of bodybuilders, and a staggering 67% of powerlifters are estimated to be on or have in various surveys admitted to being using these drugs. Now, testosterone does have a dose-dependent effect on both muscle size and strength. So there's no doubt that if you inject this stuff, you are going to get bigger muscles and stronger muscles. However, and this is a huge caveat, none of the anabolic steroids, including testosterone, have ever been shown to have any benefit to endurance sport. They don't change VO2 max. They don't change your lactate threshold. There are some studies in elderly and older subjects that show improvement both in aerobic capacity and in the ability to recover. And that's something that you, you just mentioned with the rowers. If you could take something that would allow you to recover better and get higher amounts of training in, then that is clearly going to be a benefit. And so this is something that me in, in the 55 to 59 age group for men, I, I talk with other com competitors in this age group, and, and we are very concerned about this being an issue because we see how aggressively the pharmaceutical industry markets this whole notion of low T, this idea that <laughs> men have this decrease in testosterone as they age, which is a real biological thing right? that somehow has to be treated. Right? right. And right. so there's all these guys. I, I say all these guys, I'm saying it somewhat euphemistically, but there's all these guys in my age category, not necessarily in triathlon, but in my age category, who are running out to these clinics, getting these testosterone creams or injections or whatever it is, thinking it's a fountain of youth because that's what they're being sold. And on top of that, being told that they're treating something. When in reality, they're just treating their normal aging process. There's nothing to treat. And what they're really doing is using a banned performance enhancing drug. And that <laughs> just drives me and my friends in my age group absolutely crazy. This, this feeling that you know, a lot of these guys around us may be taking advantage of that. We have no idea if they are, right, but right. It, it certainly might be. Another kind of drug that has been used a lot more in elite Olympic type of athletics. I've never heard of this drug being used in triathlon is HGH, human growth hormone. HGH is almost always taken in conjunction with testosterone because it has a theoretical and perceived among the people who use it benefit on muscle growth and also because it's incredibly hard to detect. A systematic review of 27 studies looking at 303 healthy adults in whom the effects of growth hormone on various measures of athletic performance such as muscle, st muscle strength and endurance were analyzed concluded that claims that growth hormone actually enhances physical performance are not actually supported. So all of these people who are using human growth hormone in conjunction with anabolic hormones are injecting themselves with something that, again, has some pretty important health effects, but doesn't seem to actually do a whole lot. So, so HGH and anabolic steroids certainly common. We hear about it a lot. There would be a reason for female triathletes to to use a, a drug like these, and that would be to improve muscle strength, which we know has some impact on speed, but most importantly, because as we talked about earlier, just the ability that it, that it would gain or that it would give someone to have a faster recovery and be able to train harder and longer. Yeah. So faster recovery. And, and when you think of, depending on the background of that 
athlete in the age group ranks, being able to build a little bit of muscle mass to climb faster, swim faster, whatever. I hear you when you're saying it doesn't have a direct effect on endurance sports, but maybe a little bit, right? If you are building some muscle mass where there wasn't any before. Am I right? I think the issue is that it's the specific metrics related to endurance sport being VO2 max, lactate threshold, those kinds of things, they do not change. But you're right. If you're stronger, your VO2 max can be unchanged. You're going to be able to push more power. So interesting. interesting. The, The last of the physical enhancers. So we've talked about steroids and HGH. These are both taken to try and enhance physical ability. The last of the physical enhancers has the most science to show that it actually does confer major benefits. And this is the one for which Colin Chartier was busted, and that's EPO. EPO is short for erythropoietin, which is a naturally occurring hormone that's made in the kidneys. People who have renal failure and are on dialysis don't make this hormone. And as a result, over time, become increasingly anemic and need to have blood transfusions in order to keep their blood levels at a level that is compatible with life. In, gosh, I can't remember when it was, but it was now going back about 30 years ago, if not a little bit further than that, the drug company Amgen developed a synthetic version of EPO, and it was a lifesaver for patients with kidney disease. Instead of having to come in and get transfused every few weeks, they now get a shot of EPO on a regular basis, and it keeps their blood levels high enough that they don't need blood transfusions. It's been a a major, major savior of morbidity and mortality within that community. The thing is, we know that blood is a really important determinant of VO2 max because VO2 max just refers to how much oxygen we could process in our muscles in order to do the work necessary to do the exercise we're doing. And one of the major contributors to VO2 max is how much oxygen can we carry in our blood? Well, the main thing that carries oxygen in our blood is our red blood cells and EPO can dramatically increase the number of red blood cells. EPO administration in untrained or trained athletes will bump the hemoglobin level by like 12% and hematocrits up to 19%. And this is associated with dramatic increases in VO2 max and significant improvement in endurance measures. The other thing that EPO can do is along with increasing the number of red blood cells in your body is also increase the reactivity of platelets and platelets are the thing that allow us to stop our bleeding. But if they start clumping together in the wrong place, they can result in some really, really bad problems. So for example, if platelets stick together in an artery in our heart, we get a heart attack. If they stick together in an artery in our brain, we get a stroke. And people who take EPO, especially illicitly, and even the patients like we see in renal failure who are taking EPO regularly, are at much higher risk for developing these problems because of that increased platelet reactivity. So no question, EPO has been shown to dramatically increase performance in endurance sport. It is also very dangerous, potentially. And it's become much easier to detect the ways that drug labs, initially it was very hard to detect, but now it's become a lot easier to detect. The residuals of the hormone stick around for quite a while and can be detected for many, many days. It's a a lot harder to dope effectively with this stuff, but it is still being done and it is still being done successfully by the people who are the most wily and able to evade testing. So those are the three ways that people will physically dope, but there's more (laughs) because there's also cognitive doping and cognitive. I don't want to spend too much time on cognitive doping, but cognitive doping is basically anything that you take that is going to allow you increased clarity of mind, increased focus. One of the things that we take almost everybody takes on a regular basis is caffeine. And caffeine is a form of cognitive enhancement. It's not called cognitive doping because it is legal. 
But if you take caffeine to the extreme, there are various drugs that can do what caffeine does in a much more significant manner. Things like ephedrine, pseudephedrine, which are typical cold remedies, things like cocaine, amphetamines have all been used. Things like Adderall, these things have been used by athletes to increase their cognitive functioning and increase their ability to perform and push through periods where the fatigue might otherwise come on. So that that's the kinds of things that people are taking that are illegal. We know that EPO is the big one that actually works. It's also one that's quite hard to come by. But as we've seen, if you have the will and you have the means, then it can be done. I think the most common one, though, is, is going to be things like anabolic steroids, especially in older age groups. Okay. Okay. So we've talked a little bit of, before the call about this, but you know, given these pretty significant adverse effects that result from EPO, steroids, et cetera, particularly for age groupers, but for everybody, why do we think athletes are taking these performance-enhancing substances? My sense is that for the most part, if you don't see people getting caught, then you think that you're not going to get tested and caught. And if you're motivated by whatever it is that wants to put you on the podium of an age group race, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I, I understand because I've wanted to win for a very long time and I worked super hard to be able to get to the top of the podium and being at the top of the podium is a wonderful feeling. I am thrilled and very happy to be able to say I did that just through hard work, but maybe you're somebody who just did all as much hard work as you can and just can't get there. And so you really, really want to taste that you've never wanted anything before, or maybe in a younger life, you used to win all the time and you miss that feeling. I, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but I do know that it's happening a lot and it's happening a lot more than we think it is and a lot more than we wish it was. And I'm basing that on scientific research. But in 2013, there was a very good scientific study done in Germany. It encompassed 3,000 triathletes that as they were coming in to register for one of three different Ironman events in Germany, they were given a questionnaire, completely anonymous. It took only a little bit of demographic data in terms of their age and their sex, but then it asked specific questions and it asked it in a very neutral way so that athletes would be more likely to be, were more likely to answer honestly. And I won't get into all the methods because their methods were really robust. And I think the study's results are definitely accurate. Basically, what they found was 13%, and this number was consistent across men and women, 13% were using physical enhancement, so physical doping methods, and 15% were using cognitive so taking some kinds of stim stimulants during their training and leading into their racing. That is an astonishing number. That's like between one and eight and one and seven. And these, and these, those who said they were using them, the class, the substance or the class of drug that they were talking about are banned drugs. They're not just banned like 10, to, 10 cups of coffee. Okay. Banned substances. Okay. No. Caffeine was specifically teased out, but caffeine tablets, which you can buy in Germany with, from a pharmacy with a prescription, were considered cognitive Enhancers. enhancement or doping. Okay. So the, that number may have been skewed a little bit by people using caffeine tablets. Still, the physical stuff was huge. And 13%. the yeah, 13% is a gigantic number. And the thing that just shocked me the most, well, actually, no, it doesn't shock me because I have said for the longest time uh, on this program, I've reviewed many, many different supplements that people promote for use. And I've always said people spend a lot of money on these supplements and, and basically there is no shortcuts. It turns out that the number one predictor for using a banned substance was first using some kinds of supplements. Oh, legal interesting. Supplements. Okay. Yeah. So it's almost like it's a gateway drug. Yeah. And I guess there so, is, it's very gray in someone's mind while I'm taking collagen or I'm taking spirulina or whatever. And so that's okay. And that helps. So I'm just going to take one more step or two more steps and move over to the other side, which is the Charban substance. Yeah. So it's all a little bit 
overwhelming, discouraging. I think that we both recognize that this one positive test in the pro ranks is clearly not the truth of the matter. There's no way that of all of the pros out there, there's only one of them who is using anything. It's just one of them who's been caught so far. A potential way to address this, but I think that the organizations that run these races is not necessarily interested in doing this. If the numbers are as high as 13 to 15% who are doping, and those people suddenly think they could get caught because there's an increased testing regimen, are they going to continue to show up? And I don't know that Ironman or PTO or USAT wants to take the risk of losing 10 to 15% when they're already kind of struggling a little bit to fill races. So that might oh, not, even though I, I would argue that I would argue that if you cleaned up the age group ranks, maybe you'd find more people coming to the sport because they would realize that it's a clean sport. I, I don't know that you'd make up for as much of a loss as you might get. But I don't know. I mean, this came up on a women's feed that I'm on and the question was broached very much is as, is this a problem? Like, is this, is this something that I should worry about? And I guess my response is you can't control the decisions of other people and what they do. You can't control what, what kind of fitness or condition they show up at with it on race day. You can't control the mental state they're in. You can't control if they've decided to take performance enhancement drugs you can only control what you yourself do. And so I guess I, 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 I think that you and I have had this conversation many times and it may also be more prevalent in the men's ranks than in the women's ranks. I don't know. It sounds like it might be, but it's just not, I guess I sort of approach it the same way I approach the East Germans. I just, I just don't, I can't worry about other people's decisions. And I, and I guess I would encourage age group athletes to approach it the same way. And you show up in the best condition and, Everybody else does what they do. And um, yeah, it'd be great if there were better controls, but lacking that for the short term, try not to be concerned where other people are. I think that's excellent advice. And it's certainly the way I've decided to approach things because I recognize this is out there. I recognize it's something I can't do anything about. And you know what? It doesn't take away from how hard I train. It doesn't take away from how much I enjoy the sport. I go out there, I do my thing. Triathlon at the end of the day is an individual sport, no matter what. And where you end up is very much a determination of how hard you work, but it's also, you take away from that what you want. If, if at the end of the day, you're happy with your performance and you're happy with how the race went for you, then it doesn't really matter what place you were in because of all of those other things you describe. And I honestly, I, I can't think of a better way to close the conversation because it is a subject that is difficult. It's a subject that we don't really have all the facts on. And it's a subject that causes a lot of consternation for people. And I think as you so eloquently point out, probably unnecessarily to a certain extent, That being said, I think it's been great to at least provide some of this information about what people use, how they're, or what they think they're getting out of it, what they are actually getting out of it, and the very real adverse effects that can come from using these things. And I think that at the end of the day, these personal decisions have to be recognized to have some very potentially important long-term consequences that, let's face it, we're all in sport partly because we love competition, but also because we want to stay healthy. And, right. <laughs> right? Yeah. You, yeah, you I mean, do that much better by staying clean. Well, that's the ironic part of it is, is that none of us in the age group categories are ever going to pay our mortgage with our 70.3 winnings, but it would be really nice to live a really long time based on all this training that we're putting in. So why would you compromise that by putting something in your body that could threaten it? So, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, Juliet, thank you once again for an excellent conversation. I really enjoyed it. And again, listeners, if you have a question you want to hear us discuss on the medical mailbag, I hope that you'll send it to me. You can email it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or you can join the private Facebook group for the TriDoc podcast on that platform answer a couple of really easy questions. I'll grant you admittance. You could submit your questions there and join the conversation. Juliet, I will talk with you next time. Thanks, Jeff.
My guest on the podcast today is the founder and owner of Varlo, Saj Jibowu. While you may not have heard of Saj, I'm guessing that you have definitely heard of his company. Varlo began just three years ago, but in that time has taken the triathlon world by storm because of their bold designs, high quality product, and a corporate vision that embraces diversity, equity, and inclusion, both in triathlon and society in general. Saj immigrated with his family from Nigeria at a young age, and though his family faced many of the same struggles as other immigrants because of his prowess at athletics, he was able to attend college on a track and field scholarship where he excelled at sprinting. After college, he moved to Chicago, where he became more enamored with endurance sport and launched himself into long-distance running and triathlon. By 2019, he was working on the idea of Varlo, and in 2020, took the plunge to bring the idea to fruition, something that triathletes around the world couldn't be happier about. With a roster of sponsored athletes, including Jason West, Cody Beals, and Rach McBride, and a lineup of products that include full-length suits and hijabs for Muslim women who wish to race triathlon without compromising on their religious beliefs, Varlow has established itself on the leading edge of our sport when it comes to welcoming the entire world to participate. I had a chance to chat with Saj privately a couple of weeks ago, and I couldn't be happier to welcome to the TriDoc podcast today. Welcome, Saj. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. That was a very warm welcome, man. I, I'm, I'm already indebted to you on that welcome alone. So thank you. Well, it, it it comes from who you are. It's very easy to embrace somebody warmly when they are such a, an amazing individual who's brought so much with them. I, I want to begin with your background in multi-sport. I love to hear how people come from different athletic pursuits and end up in triathlon and have some of the same struggles that so many of us do in getting into this sport. You obviously had a very accomplished career as a sprinter. How did you end up with swim, bike, and run, and and what struggles did you have in getting success? Yeah, absolutely, man. Thanks for the question. I lived in Michigan for many years, but my first my first instance watching a race, a triathlon race, was in Chicago. And I think you know it's it's easy. I make fun of it because I ran a four hundred in college. And after collegiate sports, I still wanted to stay fit, still wanted to be active. We all, we all, we all want to stay. Some people would say we all want to, we all want to stay dangerous, right? So I still want to be fit. And but you can't necessarily go to the track on a Thursday afternoon and challenge people to a four hundred. You can't say, "Hey, I want to race you." And <laughs> so endurance sports was the was the obvious. Just just running to stay fit. Local five Ks, ten Ks. It was a slow progression into the sport. And after I watched my first tri my, my first triathlon in Chicago, I was just I was like this overwhelmed feeling of excitement, curiosity. I guess I would say I would use the word in, just impressed with the athleticism. And it I said, I gotta try that out. I gotta I gotta see what's up with that. Have you ever felt like an outsider in a sport that has been traditionally so racially homogenous? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, the sport itself, I think you look at people of color, people of color as a a broad spectrum, but maybe it's like 5%. People that are black, African American, or that's maybe maybe 2%. So I think one of the things I first noticed when I when I went to my first race is, yeah, it's definitely noticeable you, oh, man, like there's the, the diversity spectrum profile is definitely different than track and field <laughs> than where I came from. But I think it's also it's also allowed and the way one would think of it is that there's just so much opportunity to bring people to the sport. There's opportunity for the sport to grow in in many, many, many areas, including diversity, but just diversity as a full spectrum of who who can come to the sport. When did the idea of Varlo come to you and did it always embody inclusion in your mind? Yeah, Varlo, the idea came in 2019 and it it was not, initially it wasn't inclusion diversity, was not the the main spearheading factor. I think the, the spearheading factor was curiosity. It was, I wanted to know more. I wanted to know more about the sport. I wanted to know more about the industry side of the sport. And I wanted to just investigate like anything that you pursue, you, you don't, I guess you may start off saying, Hey, I want to do this. And this is just what I'm going to do. But it starts off initially as questions and trying to understand, trying to be a student to what is occurring and, 
And after that, you you then start to go, okay, well, what are what are opportunities? And one of the things that stood out with the sport is that it's extremely young. It's a very young sport, maybe 41, 40 years old of a sport. And we we laugh and joke sometimes because the three-point line in basketball is is older than triathlon. You think of the sport of triathlon and people are where people are playing football with leather helmets before triathlon. It's, it's just so young of a sport. So when you think of that, you it's easy to say like, oh my goodness, there's there is so much room for advancement here, and there's so much room for for growth in in all areas. And the obvious, obvious, you know, the number one obvious one being how do you grow the sport? How do you bring more people to the sport? And obviously, diversity is a no brainer. But how do you make the sport accessible to to the people that are currently not in it so that way this the sport can grow and be prosperous and bring more people to it we've seen a lot of movement and diversity across sports that have traditionally been more homogenous uh, i think of cycling for example with some of the efforts by uh, the team legion in los angeles mm-hmm. where there's been a great effort and really a terrific spread of cycling amongst the black community and i'm seeing a little bit of that now in triathlon i know mm-hmm. that uh, grit usa has done uh, really a great job at uh, bringing people of color i know there's a I don't know his name. I'm sorry. I was talking with my friend Marcus who told me about a, a really nice grassroots movement in Chicago that's mm-hmm. led by an individual who brings uh, youth into swimming pools and gets them moving into multi-sport as well. There's organizations in Brooklyn. Does Varlow have any grassroots movements as well, or are you involved with any uh, youth organizations to try and improve diversity and inclusion? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's and Marcus, it's funny. I remember talking with Marcus. I was talking with Marcus about the launch of Barlow before we even launched. I remember having so many chats with him on. This is, it feels like forever ago, but I remember, <laughs> I remember like it was me and my family actually drove down to Chicago to go meet with him to talk to him about apparel and kits and stuff for, for Grit USA. And this is, again, this is all very, very, very early, early, early Barlow stuff. But Marcus is an awesome guy. But, um, but anyway, I kind of digress a little bit. Um, yeah, like we've, we've, we're involved with a number of, of teams, groups, clubs, grassroots efforts. Um, Nagatok Triathlon Girls out of uh, Nagatok, Connecticut. Um, we were the, the spearhead behind offering apparel to them. Uh, we're still involved with them as they start their second year into the sport. We're involved with actually the Triathlon Foundation in some capacities. And also there's a number of uh, groups Black Men Run, Atlanta Tri Sisters, gosh, Major Taylor, all these groups we work with. And it's it's phenomenal. We're actually on our second HBCU university for doing custom apparel where we work with them. So we we've worked with Hampton University, um, Mind So over there, and we're currently working with Delaware State University as well. So that'll be our second HBCU college and working with. So and there, and there's a number of other Groups, I, I can't remember all of them off the top of my head, but there's a number of other ones that we we work with. So we can- and of course, there's your ambassador team too. I've oh. seen many of your ambassadors <laughs> who represent who represent the spectrum of inclusion and diversity across our sport oh, as yeah, well, which yeah. uh, I think is a great example. Yeah, I would, I would, I would probably dare to say that we have the most diverse range of athletes on a team in the sport of triathlon. I would dare to say that easily. And it's one thing I'm extremely, extremely proud of. And that, that, and that diversity is, is very, very broad. I mean, that diversity, when people think diversity, it's easy to think like race and we bring in more people of color into the sport specifically. And yes, we, we ha- by that definition alone, yes, we have a very diverse group of individuals on our team. But if you were to look at diversity as LGBTQ, if you were to look at diversity as male and female, if you were to look at diversity as the profile of athletes are they where are they at in their journey in the sport are they new are they oncomers are they early adopters are they power trainers are they what some may call high performance athletes we have that full spectrum on our team and so it, it's again it's something I'm, I'm extremely extremely proud of because the the whole purpose of this i think in in being a brand owner and doing anything in a sport is being an ambassador of the sport first. That's that's number one. Be an ambassador of the sport first. 
And then everything else kind of comes naturally. And the, the name of the game is how do we, how do we grow the sport, right? How do we grow the sport? How do we grow the sport? How do we grow the sport? And focus on all those benchmarks and KPIs to grow it. And everything else comes, like all the other stuff happens. Like it'll just naturally happen. Well, I, I'm interested. You're an incredibly personable guy, obviously. You've got a great presence on social media. You're obviously very passionate about our sport. I wonder, is it possible for you to sort of objectively look and give some sense of why it is that Varlow has been such an explosion of success in our sport? I, I, it's just remarkable to me to see the brand come from obscurity to reach the popularity and success that it's had in such a short period of time. It's really, really amazing and a testament to your hard work, obviously. But I, I wonder if you have the ability and perspective to sort of stand back a little bit and look at it and say, I think that we've done X, Y, and Z differently from other people to, to help us get to where we are. Do you, yeah. do you think there are certain things? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think you hit the nail on the head with the, with the hard work part. I think I think talent, skill, I think clever wit, however big your, your spreadsheet is and so on and so forth, none of that means anything unless you're not willing to work extremely, extremely hard and almost, I would dare to say, crazy, <laughs> like in a crazy sense, right? So it, it, that comes from me. It comes from my team. It comes from the people that are around me that are just amazing people, amazing human beings first. And so I think that is number one. The hard work part is easy. That's like a point blank. Yes, we work hard. We work, I'd say we work harder than we work harder. Number one, I just, I just flat out believe it. And then I would say the, the other thing, if I had to give an objective, and this is the only way, this is the only way I can logically think about it is in the sport, maybe, I don't know, before starting Barlow, maybe like six, seven years in the sport before starting Barlow. I'm not a, I didn't grow up doing triathlon. I didn't grow up swimming. I would, I would dare to say maybe I'm a, maybe some people may call me an outsider in that sense. Right. And so I would dare to say that having that outside perspective does a lot because you don't focus on, you're not focusing on old sense, traditional acumen, and processes. So you're not focusing on doing what has already been done and to get results. I think it's more so of doing things that are very untraditional, very traditional relative to the sense, right? But it makes sense to me. It makes sense to say, hey, I don't want to have a team that's focused on elite athletes, right? It makes sense to me. I don't, I, I think it makes sense to have a team that is that has an equal number of gendered athletes on it, male versus female. That's a very, very openly acceptable of LGBTQ individuals. To me, that just makes total sense, right? And again, the notion of how do we grow the sport first, and then we do everything else, I think is 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 key. And I don't know. I I, I would just dare to say that we we come from an outside perspective, and I believe that if you do. If you focus on what has already been done, and you're going to get the same results, you're, you just you flat out are. That's just how it's going to work. But if you're able to focus on untraditional processes, if you're able to focus on outside perspective, quote unquote, thinking outside of the box, you you may get different results. And 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 and, and I, I don't know. That's. I don't know. I guess that's all I'd say. Well, I, I, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit on some of the things you've said because you, you're clearly you have the right people working really hard, tapping into a need that I think you identified early on as being that triathlon and and the providers of triathlon apparel have probably not recognized that was there that this need to provide apparel to everyone who wanted to be part of the sport not just the people who all looked a certain way and you've you've brought this outside perspective and been willing to push boundaries in terms of the patterns and in terms of the the designs that you've brought to bear yeah and you bring you bring an excellent product to market that people like and that all those things together with 
a founder who is clearly very passionate about what he does and passionate for the sport and willing to work as hard as you've been able to work and wanted to work is going to result in the kinds of success that you've had. So I think that that's very well put. I, I wanted to go back to something you mentioned earlier, and that was uh, your affiliation with the uh, HBCUs, because I wonder if you have any thoughts about what it means for black triathletes that Varlow is a black owned business in this space is, is that's got to be something that is going to draw more black triathletes into the sport to know that there is such a prominent black person in the sport like yourself, I would think. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's everything. It, it, it truly is. I mean, you look at like the Jackie Robinson effect, right? And you have the first, and then everyone sees, ooh, that's what's possible. And anyone who would probably, I guess, object to that notion would, would you can't look at like, okay, well, you look at like the Roger Bannister effect, right? The guy that broke like the four minute barrier. One of our, our owners talks about this. And like, I think that year after he broke it, it was like, I mean, you had like 30 or 20, I don't know the exact number, but however many people broke the four minute mile barrier. And so it's, it's just, people have to see it to know that it's achievable or know that it's, it's normalized. Right. And I always think that like the, the easiest way to, to do anything and to change anything is to normalize it. And you, you have to don't put like a squeaky name on it. Don't, make it don't put like a clever hashtag on it or don't highlight it and say hey everyone look at this look at this it has to be normal it, it has to be normalized because when it's normalized it's normal right and that's what we that's what we want we want the normal effect that triathlon is just here it's you know like and it's here and it's here for it's here for all people all bodies all all demographics all all people and i think that I will, I will go back to your previous question as far as objective, like what do, what do we do differently? Because I think as soon as you do, you, you, you get those people, one of the things that we're extremely overly obsessive about, like overly obsessive about, like we, we probably use this word daily and we ask ourselves this question daily is how are we bringing value? What's the exchange of value? How are we making sure we're bringing value? How are we delivering value? What's the value proposition in this? Why is someone going to see value in this? When people get this, where's the value? It, everything is about value and making sure that anyone who comes across the brand touches our products, they're engaging in us in some capacity. There's like the value, the value proposition or the, the value to the brand is immediate. Like it's, and it's almost non-questionable, Right. That's that's something we we ask ourselves. Often. It doesn't mean that we're going to have a hundred hundred percent success rate, but it's something we. It means a lot to us. We put a lot of focus on that. Let's just say that. I got a tough question for you. I wonder, do you, you know, when you look back on where you've been, where you've come from, where you're now, have you made any mistakes? Of course, of course. Gosh. Like tons, so many. <laughs> yeah. Any that you'd, you'd care to share? Oh gosh, man! Of course, man. Like, like so many. Like, I mean, when look, first of all, there is no such thing as like even whether you can be great at anything, you're still going to make mistakes. You're that's that's part of the process. That's part of getting better. You know, the idea of not making mistakes and getting better does not exist. You get better because you've made mistakes or you're learning from mistakes, whether they be yours or someone else's, right? So mistakes happen. Mistakes happen along the way. I think how we respond to those mistakes is, is key. One of our guiding principles is being responsive, meaning that there's always opportunity to learn. There's always opportunity to grow, listening to our customers, listening to the community. So that way we are growing actively. But I mean, gosh, we may... <laughs> One of the mistakes we made, like, I remember we've, we've, and it's, it's, this is all operational stuff. I mean, it's stuff like, I don't know if people would care to even care about, but it's like, I think the first time we put in like a bulk order, we did like, we did equal number sizes across the, the board. And then we realized that people don't purchase in that pattern, right? There's definitely sweet spots, hot spots on sizes that people purchase on. So we had all this extra inventory. And this is going like, this is going back two and a half years ago, almost three years ago. So we've obviously learned, and this is a very early mistake, 
but it's it's things like that and there's operational stuff with with cyclic like the cyclic process of of how to do a merchandise plan when you roll out a merchandise plan when you you activate the marketing for a merchandise plan there's all the i mean again this is all back in operation stuff I want to ask how how you decided, was it your decision or was it in conjunction with the team, how you decided to go bold with your designs? Uh, Yeah, you, you have to, you have to, you have to stand out. You have to, you have to differentiate and you always have to understand the way the psychology of the mind works, which is oftentimes when someone sees something that's very, very bold, the mind instantly is going to say that's different. And so sometimes different is pause, push away, right? But eventually you have to normalize that, that, that stigma of like, or that, that sensation of like, ooh, that's different, but I like it because it's different. And I'm attracted to it because it's different. And different is everything. It's, it's, it's how you, you stand apart. It's how you, you, you're, you're seen, I guess, if that makes any sense. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's just part of the, I guess I'd say the, the plan strategies, part of the aesthetic of the brand. Now I know that Varlow puts a huge emphasis on tomorrow. That's a big uh, part of your ethos at the company. It's a mm-hmm. uh, part of your philosophy. I'm curious if we can get any insight to what tomorrow might hold for Varlow. Oh. Do you, can you share with us any any of what might oh, be coming down the pipe? Man, I'm I'm so sealed at the lips. I'll, I'll let's see if I can share something. I can share that tomorrow. We do put a lot of emphasis on tomorrow. I think we overuse the word on our website. We recently did a video, and our one of our owners was like, man, we used we use tomorrow like three times in the first 30 seconds of the video. We got to edit it out. But I think tomorrow, all right, so we got a lot happening. Even like the next 60 days, gosh, like the next two weeks, there's a lot happening. The next 30 days, there's big, massive things happening, new partnerships, whether it be product rollouts, all those things, massive, massive partnerships that are taking place. But yeah, man. I think without spilling the beans too much, I would say I'd say just wait. Keep your eyes on the brand. Keep your eyes on us. Lots happening. Lots taking place. And it's when we focus on tomorrow, it's not internally on us, right? It's not like, hey, you need to look at us because tomorrow is going to be so much better for us at Barlow. It's truly about how do we empower all athletes to conquer the goals of tomorrow. And how do we continue to motivate those athletes? And how do we continue to be a beacon of inspiration to those athletes for their tomorrow? That their tomorrow is bigger, brighter, stronger than their today's, than their yesterday's. As a brand, we understand that the athlete of tomorrow will look very different than the athlete of today versus yesterday. Tomorrow is everything. And if you focus on tomorrow as a company, as a person, as an athlete, as a human being, you will always be able to enjoy the now. You will always be able to enjoy them now. So that's my that's my little spill of the beans. <laughs> I, I think that was a – you have a future in politics, Aj. It was an excellent <laughs> dodge. <laughs> a, a non-answer to the question. It was really well done. Very well done. Okay, I got one last question yeah. for you. This one I know you can answer. The website talks a lot about the Varlow journey, mm-hmm. about the journey of the athletes with Varlow. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I think – and starting the brand, one of the big things was to tell the story of the athlete in a way it's not been told before. And that is with all athletes, whether it be our pro athletes like Jason West, Cody Beals, or it be our age group athletes who are, who are your everyday athletes. They're, they're your, they're people who are, they're accountants, they're bankers. They are some of them in between jobs. They're just people. And I think that it's so important to tell those stories because it, you, it makes it relatable. You want to be able to share stories so that people can listen, they can look, they can feel and go, wow, that's, that's me. And so if you go to like to our about section on our header of our page, you go to stories, you see all of our stories there. And we couldn't be more proud of that. So it's a way to highlight our athletes. It's a way to highlight members of our team to applaud their, their, their sense of being just normal human beings, right? Who are passionate about sport but also how they've gotten to that sport, what their journey was, whether it be they grew up doing sports or whether it be that they, they immigrated to the country and they found them way in, their way into sports or they were in the military and they've went through traumatic incidences and they've, they've, they've needed to find a way to, 
for their compass, right? Whatever that, that balance was, maybe sport was that for them. So I think it's so important that people hear those stories. And I think we're always going to, we're always going to share that stuff. We will always share that stuff. Well, I think that's a perfect way to end a very interesting and entertaining discussion. Saj Chibou is the founder, the owner, the the man, the inspiration behind Varlo, the ever-growing and ever-present name that you will see at any multi-sport event these days, and for good reason. Saj, I can't thank you enough for taking some time to join me and uh, talk about Varlo and talk about the uh, rapid growth of such a, a an impressive company that has brought so much to our sport. And I look forward to seeing all of the things that are coming down the pike in just uh, the next uh, couple of weeks to 30 days or whatever. It's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> thanks again for joining me today, Saj. It's been a real pleasure. Awesome. Big thanks, Jeff. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my interns, I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. Oh, how you doing? No relation. I'm, uh... I'm Jeff Sankoff, uh, the, the Tri-Doc. I'm in charge here. Not anymore. Those interns are Ian Johnson and Ben Johnson. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or join the private Tridoc Podcast Facebook group on Facebook, and you can submit your questions there. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit try.coaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDark Podcast Facebook page, TriDark Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDark Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121 and train hard, train healthy. <laughs>